I would rather own half of something than a percentage. So I said, guys, you're going to go on to this great big deal of a 1,500 units. Is there any way that you would sell me your general partnership? Then I'd own 15%, you know, but 100% of the general partnership mm-hmm. of Oakbrook Park. And then over a five-year period, I went to all the investors, paid them 12% on their money, plus all their money back and in a spiff. And they all 18 investors sold out to me. So then, you know, so now I went from 5% on 162 unit complex. It was worth about 9 million then. Uh, today, uh, the last 18 years, I've owned it since 1993. Now I own it 100% myself, and it's worth more like 25 million. <laughs> so it was the best thing that I ever did. And I asked them, you know, to please sell out to me. And they did as gentlemen. And they went on. And from that point on, I stayed into either deals that were 50% ownership or 100%. I'd rather own 50% or 100% of a 12-plex than 5% of 1,200 units. Just because you can control your destiny and your journey. You know what the exit strategy is a lot better. Mm. And it's just simpler. So I like my life simpler. I don't need ego. I don't need to say I own. It's us, we, and our world. And the more you I, I, I things, it doesn't it gets lonely. But if you're an us, we, and our world of the of your investments and even uh, with the team that you're with, it just seems like it goes smoother, less waking up at the middle of the night, and you just can uh, have a better uh, feel about the investment, in my opinion. Welcome to RIA Radio, episode 107 with John Hoyt. You're listening to RIA Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out RiaRadio.com. I have been trying Wait to minute. get I have been trying to get John Hoich in here for a long time. I uh, probably asked him a good 20 times. He is a busy man, always traveling. Like literally after he left the podcast studio, he jumped on a plane and was, went to Colorado. <laughs> Right. What was, yeah, he did. But like, did he always have a pat answer to like, "Hey, we'd love to get you in this week. What, what's going on?" And he's like, "Oh, I have, a, I have a thing." No, no, it was, it was always like, "I'm traveling. I, I'm speaking at this. I'm going okay. to this convention." Uh, John has been a become a good friend uh, since he. Uh, well, I first heard him speak at the Omaha Ria uh, way before I took over the, our local group. And was just completely taken, like, he told a story, and I was just like, oh, my God, this this cannot be real. And then I read his book in just a matter of a day or two, because it's not a very long read, but it's an intense read. And it should be, a, it'd be an, it's, movie, it's movie potential. Mm. So all directors listening to this, check out his book, because this, this, this movie uh, would be amazing. And then uh, got to know him, super kind. And then uh, we attended a, a funeral, and at that funeral, ran into John again, got talking to him. And then uh, afterwards, uh, he came on and spoke at our local RIA group, and we'll, we'll link in the show notes his actual event where, yes. he, where he spoke. It's on our podcast. And uh, since then, I've been in communication with him on a weekly basis, sometimes more. 
And uh, just like, you know, he just, he's super kind. He looks out for everybody that's around him. He wants to lift people up. He wants, he wants to educate people. And, uh, and he's got a just a really impactful story. I mean, this is a guy that's, you know, you know, they, they say that, uh, Warren Buffett is the Oracle of Omaha. Well, I mean, John Hoyt is definitely one of the, in the top legacy people in, in the city. He's leave, he's leaving his mark on, on our lo- local area and on a, a national community also. Yeah, in, in in the previous podcast that you were me- that you mentioned is episode forty nine. And I have a title, A True Rags to Riches Story, because it, he, when he talked about it, it literally that's how it is he started. He started with a single lawnmower. And now he's insane. <laughs> he is insanely wealthy. Like it's, it's. It, you can't even fathom how wealthy he is. And this is one of the few podcasts uh, that in episode forty nine that you can actually find uh, the video on on our YouTube channel on Ria Radio. Wow! Yeah, so you can watch it. That wow. was that was low. Yeah, that well, was below the belt. Bro. I know it's just because I, it's just it's belt. just because I did it. It's all good. Oh wow! That was twice <laughs> below the belt, bro. <laughs> That laugh is not good. Always. Sorry, that was a I was, very. I was thinking of something yeah. else that was funny, not that what Ted said that was mean. Um, no, John John Hoyt. So I was I I, had, I don't know him as well as you, Ted, but like he's been nothing short of like impressive as hell since I have been around him and listened to him talk about his story. And like you said, like anybody out there that is interested in finding out more after listening to this episode. Um, his book is titled from the ground up, which is kind of tongue in cheek reference to his, uh, his origins as a lawn care, um, guy when he was, uh, in his teenage years in high school. And he, he, uh, leveraged his experience in like landscaping and, and, uh, lawn care into huge, huge multi-year contracts with uh, the U.S. government in the form of the military. And so he was carrying after the landscaping and lawn and I think snow even. Maybe I'm lying there. Yeah, but, irrigation. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so he handled a lot of uh, bases around the nation. Um, Air Force and, bases. And you're yeah. going to you're gonna find out how. It's a, it's a banana story. I mean, like he started when he was, what, 16 years old? I, I think um, I think even younger, and and he built that lawn business into a nine figure company, hmm. and and then eventually sold it, and he's you know added a ton of real estate to his portfolio, done some crazy deals all across all asset classes. Like this guy's story, man, is like you said, Ted. It's it's a it's book worthy, it's movie worthy, and uh, he's overcome so much adversity in his life from a a tough childhood where he had a father that was. Like, I, I this is my words, not his, but he had a horrible, horrible uh, role model for a father. Like, abusive, a, a, drunk. alcoholic, physically, mentally abusive, both to him and his uh, family. And, it, like, he just used that as basically fuel to, to, you know, go after bigger goals in life. And he made a mission to not fall in the footsteps of, um, you know, the path that his parents were, were, were on and, uh, has now, you know, leveraged that into selling a multi, multi, multi million dollar business. He's got a ton of real estate assets. He's been involved in developments, office, uh, retail strip malls, multifamily, single family, um, new construction, new construction. He's talked about the dangers of falling in love with, um, you know, working and becoming a workaholic. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that that's your, 
you know, your, uh, your, your badge that you're wearing where you're not maybe physically abusive or mentally abusive or something else going on in your life that's uh, negative. But he was, you know, he talked about the challenges with uh, becoming addicted to work, which he found a release in. I mean, let's be honest here. Early on in life, he had so much so many challenges that most people don't have to deal with. And he ended up, uh, you know, diving into work as a, as an outlet and was kicking ass at it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it becomes tough to, um, you know, have relationships and maintain them over the years when you're so focused on one thing. There were, there were two parts in that podcast that really stood out to me. One was when you asked the question of, was either you or, or, or Ted asked the question of how do you, like what makes a person not follow the generational curse and go against the generational curse to actually break it? You know, it wasn't in those words, but that was my interpretation of it. And the answer that he gave, you need to listen to it, but it was so good. It was so good. That was, that was one. And the second one was um, when he mentioned that he was a part of a syndication and he convinced his partners to buy out their stake in it and own it 100%. That was another part that I was like, do people actually do that where they, they own properties as a syndication and they go to their, their fellow partners and be like, hey, you have 10%, you have 10%, I want to buy out your 10% and own it 100%. And like, have you ever done that, Owen? I've never done it, but that's definitely a thing. Um, I I can, I'll, not to off you know take off track what you were saying. No, there, that's but, fine. Um, we... We meaning uh, I have a hard money business called Liquid Lending. Um, probably six months ago, we had a, uh, an investor approach us indirectly through a broker, and uh, the so in a syndication uh, deal, typically you have a general partnership group, which is your GP or sponsor group, and they're the ones basically that typically find the deal, put it together, um, get it under contract, and then they do whatever they're going to do to it to make it a successful business plan. And then sell it or refinance or keep it or whatever they're going to do. And then the limited partner's role is basically money. So they put in money into the deal. They sit back. They make a good return out of it. The GP and the sponsor's job then is to keep them updated on what's going on, manage the project like it should be, and then um, hopefully rinse and repeat into other deals. Sometimes you get a GP or sponsorship group that doesn't know what the hell they're doing, or maybe they got dealt uh, you know, bad hand uh, by the market. And... We had a deal that the general partnership guy ended up embezzling. This is what we heard. It's kind of hearsay at this point, but it, it seems like it's true. Embezzled money from that uh, that syndication as well as others, and then basically was just like dipping out and buying a whole bunch of like expensive stuff and living the high life and all mm-hmm. that. And they were getting foreclosed on. And so one of the LPs, one of the limited partners or investors in the in the syndication basically stepped up and said, listen, um, I'm going to now attempt to salvage this and I want to get financing so I can take this guy out of the deal because he's um, basically blatantly, um, flagrantly doing something illegal and I'm going to I'm going to try and salvage this so we don't lose everything. Right. So he came in and, and uh, took over the the general partnership and maintained his, his position as the LP and then rescued the deal and he got a loan from us. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up refinancing it into better debt uh, instead of hard money. And then I think salvaged the deal. We haven't followed up with them since then, but that does happen a lot. And yeah. especially now 
in the current state of the market, there's a ton of commercial real estate in, in distress because uh, there's variable interest rate, you know, products that are resetting. Um, people bought stuff, you know, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, that's now coming due, and they're going to have to refinance at a double the interest rate, and stuff no longer cash flows, mm-hmm. right? So you get you get projects that are going to be in trouble. So yeah, limited partnership groups they can rescue a deal, but there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah, I wonder if. Um, so, I mean, I haven't gotten deep into it yet, but I wonder how subject to works with those types of deals that are coming due. Like when you, if you take it subject to the, the interest rates that, that it's at, at right now, isn't it still called due at the moment you take it over? So you're still, you're still in a shit show when it, when it comes to those types of things where... Well, I mean, not okay. So we're talking about subject to, and it happens, it happens actually more in the commercial real estate industry, I think, than it does the residential. Mm-hmm. So what, what Dennis is referring to, and, and those of you that listen to Pace Morby and Travis Banks and, you know, some of the, the guests we've had for the, uh, the RIA and the, and the, uh, RIA radio, uh, you know, deals that we've done recently, um, Basically, you're taking over debt that somebody else took out. So Denless takes out a loan on a house. I come in and I say, hey, I'll take over that debt. I'm just going to make your payments. And then maybe Denless is behind on his mortgage. Maybe I give him some money to catch up that behind payment that he had. And then I just continue paying it after the fact. So I think your question is, Denless, is it always due when somebody comes in and takes over debt? No, it's not. It's if the bank does something about it. So typically they're going to get notified by the insurance company because you're going to call the insurance provider and say, Hey, there's a new, new lender on this, or I'm taking over as the borrower. So I should be on record as the insured. And then they're going to send a notification to the lender. But that's one. But what I was talking about is the multifamily deals mm-hmm. that, you know, they bought five years ago and yep. now it's going to reset. Mm-hmm. If you take those over subject to, is it still going to reset? That's what I'm asking. Or is it like a fresh new five years that you have until it resets again? That's my question. If you understand what I'm saying. So you 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 have a deal that it's on year five, it's gonna reset. You're taking over the exact same terms that the borrower is operating under right now. So that means that it's gonna reset for you too. It will reset for whoever is, is taking it over. Yeah, is is going to be paying the bills. So on t- it. so take note of this, people. Don't subject to someone's stuff that's going to reset because you yeah. probably is going to be in shit. Yeah, pay attention to the debt that you're going to go in and uh, take over and make payments on because <laughs> if it's going to reset anytime soon, you may just sign up for a shit sandwich. Yeah. Well, speaking of shit sandwiches, let's get into today's golden, golden nugget. nugget. <laughs> <laughs> today's golden nugget is brought to you by Jam Real Estate Capital. Hi, it's Rob, Jam Real Estate Capital. We're the money guys that you need to know for all your real estate investments. Talk to us. We can do what your local bank can't or won't do. We don't have millions. We have trillions with a T to lend. 844-WE-CLOSE or go online at jmrecapital.com. That's jmrecapital.com. JM Real Estate Capital, smart solutions for the real estate investor. So here's the gold nugget. Consider partnerships with property management companies or people that own property management companies. And here's why. If you attempt to get any scale in this business, so you're wanting to, you know, maybe you started with, you know, some single family deals and you want to like make a go of this and quit your job and do the whole rich dad, poor dad thing. 
you're eventually going to have to partner with somebody or hire third-party property managers or uh, 1099 contractors. You're going to have some flavor of people in your life. And where I'm going with this is if you don't like property managing, if you don't like going out and dealing, dealing with you know tenants and toilets and all that, all that stuff, consider partnering with somebody that, that's already owning a property management company because they can just take that off your your plate, right? Your job is to find the deal, get it under contract, get attractive terms for it, and basically get the partnership put in place. And then you turn it over to them to run the day-to-day. And maybe that's their skin in the game. Maybe they put in money also. But guess what? Your job now is to go out and find the next deal and then partner with them on. And then the next deal and then partner with them on. Or somebody else. My, my point in all this is it removes the need for finding a third-party property manager from the equation. And a lot of times, um, they are also able to source deals for your little partnership group. So a property manager, somebody that say that maybe they hire or maybe they manage 500 units in the city you're operating in, right? They have insight when owners are looking to sell or maybe kicking it around, or maybe they they would consider it for the right offer, you know, like you have knowledge of people and what's going on with their property and where they're at in the sales cycle. So a property manager is a wealth of knowledge. And if you're not taking advantage of that by them, either operating your business, uh, your, your property management, um, of your property or by sourcing deals for you continuously, then you're missing out. Like this is a huge opportunity that I don't think a ton of people pursue, actively. Yeah, yeah. Like I can tell you that the best deals that I've been involved in, I've done virtually nothing after acquiring. So mm-hmm. I'm not like everybody. Um, but, uh, for those that are like hunters and they don't like managing, this is a, this is the path for you. Do you have some examples of some investors that have been on the podcast per se that have taken this route of partnering with property, property managers? Well, I, uh, let's see, I can't think of off the top of my head, um, I can't think of any other than me where I've, you know, partnered with Colin Schwartz, who owned a property management company, and then basically put all that into place right after I found the deal. Now, did he tr- was it a free of uh, uh, fees uh, since he owned it as part of his partnership? No, of course not. Okay, like I like we operated it just like I was a customer, but you know, at a. Maybe there's some reduced reductions in rate or whatever in there, but like I'm not asking him to take a loss on his you know operating business because mm. that's you know how he puts food on the table as well. But mm. yeah, he's operating it just like I'm another customer, but he's handling everything that I normally would have to be involved in and make decisions about and hire people for and all that. But and and also he's you know aware of other deals that could be brought into the mix, and yeah. you could say, hey, we could also buy this thing. What do you think? So you get opportunities, you get people to handle your day-to-day management, you get like all kinds of benefits out of doing it. I just think it's smart. Yeah, it is cuz uh, I know of two past um two past guests who partnered, but I don't think they actually buy bought any um properties. It was Satyam Mystery and Dan Zimmerman. Now, well, Dan has his own property management company. Right. But, yeah. So so Satyam partnered with Dan. Oh, and I didn't know that. Right, but but the partnership was more along the lines of Satyam would work with with um with Dan to learn about multifamily underwriting, and obviously the benefit of that is if he found anything, Dan would would partner with him on buying it. Hmm. That's my understanding of the relationship. I'm not sure if anything actually happened, 
But I mean, Satyam told me that it was a beautiful relationship. It was like for a year that he he did it for, and and I think he he did benefit a lot from it. So and, and think about those two guys. Like, who knows property owners more than a property management company? Yep. Like they know all of the you know if if they're a property management company of any size at all. They're probably going to know several multifamily owners in town that know, like, that have a bunch of stuff. Right? Like you, you were just talking about that, and I was like, I think I need to message Austin. So, Austin, if you're listening yeah. to this, I'm just going to just know that I'm going to be messaging you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So, I think I think if you position that correctly and and you deal, you know, people in and give them, you know, a piece of the, you know, a piece of the deal. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of reception out of that. Well, guys, get prepared. You're about to jump into a podcast with John Hoich, and you're going to have your mind blown. Uh, we don't get too deep into his personal story uh, because we have that on a previous episode that we'll link in the show notes. But uh, this will be a podcast that you, like, you've never heard with John Hoich. So stay tuned. And if you love what you hear, please leave us a five-star review. Boom. Written. John, welcome to the show, man. Your name has been on our, our list up here for a long, long time. So we're excited to get you in here, hear your story. Um, I have a question that I've, I've been really wanting to ask you since I've heard you, uh, heard you talk on other podcasts and in person. But you have talked at length uh, about a difficult childhood that you had and, and how you were raised. And it seems like you used the negative things that happened to you early on as fuel for success. And what, what I'm curious about is now that you, you know, you're obviously grown, you've dominated in a lot of different uh, ways in life. You've done some cool stuff philanthropically. You give back constantly. Um, We'll, we'll kind of dive into your story, but what do you, what do you think is the reason that some people end up like you that had tough childhoods and others go down the path that their parents did or their guardians did. Why, what is that that separates somebody that is there a, a switch that gets flipped or were you born that way? Or what, like, what do you attribute that, that to? I've always been curious about that. People that come from tough upbringings that uh, just are crazy successful and others just do, do what their parents did. I believe that everyone has a different story. That's for darn sure. And everybody's had, a, a different story that uh, was hard, harsh, or unbelievably wonderful. And uh, mine started out, I would say, probably wonderful in the very beginning. Um, but in the disease of alcoholism, and my father uh, growed, and uh, then it made the family difficult financially, uh, domestic violence. Um, uh, alcoholism just uh, destroyed the family, which happens in a lot of addictions throughout the world. It wasn't planned. Um, I think the plan was to have um, my father marry my mother, and and uh, they you know had f- four sisters and a brother. That my brother died at twenty one, um, but the plan wasn't to uh, have it all destroyed. But uh, the uh, alcoholism or any kind of drug can destroy the plan, and so. Having that happen to our family, um, you know, you have to suck it up, Sally, and, and throughout life, and you either can overcome your adversity or feel like you're a victim and give up, and uh, the alternative is not a good turnout. It could be as much as getting in the addictions yourself and or suicide, and then the game's over. 
Now you've talked before about you know the physical abuse and the things that uh, that your your dad uh, did took took out as uh, um, probably disappointment and frustrations in himself on you uh, physically, emotionally, and so forth. Like I just I know that a lot of bullies end up getting bullied by their you know guardians or parents or or brothers and sisters at home, and they they end up turning into a bully because they're bullied themselves. But it doesn't seem like, like, I didn't know you in high school, obviously, but um, how did you, like, what do you attribute being so well adjusted to uh, now compared to, like, you know, being a bully or being, you know, just going out and, and doing some of the things, the, the self-destructive behaviors that uh, some kids seem to be attracted to when they're in a tough situation? That's the miracle that uh, I give my credit to, to God. Uh God is God. God's, God is a lot of different things to a lot of people. Um, I believe in the Lord, and I believe that uh, you know that our family uh, stayed together uh, as far as the bad parts and the good parts uh, of uh, no one got killed. Uh, you know, um, my mother died of the stress from the beatings of my father at thirty nine, but to overcome the adversity. Um, Everything my dad was violent, mean, a bully. I hate bullies. I hate bullies. And uh, everything he was, I didn't want to be. So I never smoked in my whole life. I've hardly drank. I've never did drugs. And he was a uh, you know, professional wrestler. I, I went out my first year, and I, I don't want to be like him. So I became a gymnast and state gymnast in parallel bars. At Westside, and I just loved, you know, everything I could do to be different than him uh, is what I did, which uh, really worked out well for me because I could just be me and not be uh, repeating the pattern of my father. Don't you feel that because of that? I mean, everybody has some sort of addiction. I think it comes out of those types of family situations, and maybe your addiction came out of it was work. I mean, because you, you, you work your ass off. There's no, there's no deal that I haven't looked at. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I look at the fact that, you know, we all have some sort of, uh, where do we go to? Some do it in reading a book and some do it in playing their guitar. And, and, uh, I love to play the guitar, but I never good at it. I love to golf, but I'm not good at it. So uh, the more I work, I, I make either mistakes or, or I, I hit it out of the ballpark. You know, we get first, second, third, and sometimes a home run, uh, you know. or uh, But the bottom line is that the addiction of work is no different than any kind of other addiction, in my opinion. But it uh, could be the least one that causes uh, physical death you know, and uh, domestic violence and drugs and alcohol and all the others. So I definitely feel that uh, deal junkie in, in workaholics, you know, can be a very, very uh, bad problem into a family. It can cause a lot of uh, non-attention to your children as growing up. And so many people regret that they worked so hard and then they died and the kids, you know, at the eulogy, or who's ever speaking at their eulogy or speaking about what kind of guy he was. Well, he was a great provider, but wasn't much of a dad. Mm -hmm. And so by watching that, uh, and luckily that I had children at 40 instead of 20 or 30 when I was a real workaholic. At age 40, I definitely was a workaholic, not going to deny it, but I never missed anything my sons did. It became 
a priority versus, uh, you know, having an excuse why I wasn't there. I mm-hmm. didn't make any excuses. I was there. You know, I think, it, you know, nowadays, so snapshot in time with uh, social media exploding in popularity and all the, you know, apps that, you know, kids and teenagers and on are on, but also like, it's a real problem for parents now too, because maybe you're there, but you're not really there. You're, you're distracted. And like you said, your, your attention is elsewhere when you're, uh, when you're with your kids and your family. So I think it's kind of like almost a phantom, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the the right way to put this, but it's like, I think growing up in the, you know, eighties, nineties, uh, era, we didn't have, smartphones and all the things available. And I know you kind of, you're a little bit older than me, but I kind of grew up a little bit, a little bit after you, I'd say you're what not, you're probably on the cusp of Gen X, aren't you pretty close? 39. What is that? Oh yeah. <laughs> right there. Yeah. Right. Um, but I, no, I just I'm think six, like 65, I just learned about Medicare. So, <laughs> Oh boy. It's like getting the AARP uh, thing in the mail, isn't it? For the first time class of 76 at West side, <laughs> born in 58. Okay. All right. So a little bit older than me, but, uh, I just think it's interesting now because, you know, back, I would say probably when you were working, you, you had a lawn business, right? That was where you focused a lot of your energy, and so you were gone probably all the time, right? You were not at home or in an office. So you were out working. And I think nowadays, like there's a lot more jobs that aren't necessarily physical labor, but you're still gone, even though you're there. I guess this is the point I'm trying to make. You know sun I mean? up, sun up to sundown. You know, I was like a farmer, you know, and, uh, and in the winter we did snow removal and sometimes it was three days long, you know, so the. The ozone world has changed the snow the way it used to be, but we used to get like 60 inches a year in Omaha. And so, and then I went to school, college, and then, and then worked and uh, then always had a real estate. I bought my first real estate investments at 18. So when I wasn't mowing, I was doing real estate. I had to save a lot of money though, having your own uh, lawn and snow removal company or having real estate because I'm getting bids on this place right now, and, it, and I get somebody gave me a bid the other day for two hundred and fifty dollars for a snowfall here, and I'm like, that, that's not going to work. Oh, for the parking lot and <laughs> yeah. the steps and yeah. the sidewalk. Yeah. yeah, that used to be the mortgage payment, I, right? See? <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I I really want to get your take on what you think the environment right now is like in the real estate world or the you know economy in general. You've been through several different economic cycles. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on how things sit right now with, uh, two wars or one budding war, one existing war, we've got interest rates have gone up like unprecedented levels or speed, but you've been through times where it's 22% interest rates. So what, what do you, what do you think about all this? Well, I think about it a lot. Um, 20, 1982, I, uh, had a note for three hundred thousand dollars. I was about uh, twenty-two years old, and and uh, and in nineteen eighty-two, interest rates went to twenty-two percent, and I didn't know how to handle it, but you figure it out. And it wasn't pretty, but uh, I never gave up. Never give up with the thumbs up as the Hoyt way. And so I learned a long time ago that just to take each battle at a time and and deal with it and recognize it, and then figure out how to, you know make an obstacle into a strategy. Interest rates have been incredibly low. Um, I did a lot of deals. I didn't do as many deals 
brand new when interest rates were so low, which I wished I would have done more of. Uh, but now I'm about to build 180 units uh, with some partners out in Norfolk, Nebraska, um, called the Foundry Apartments, brand new. And I'm looking at, you know, the interest rates, you know, that were zero or two or three or four percent. Now are more like five, six or seven, maybe eight percent. We I don't know where it's going to land, uh, but construction still going on everywhere in the world. Um, and there's going to be a lot of people that'll take risk for reward. It's how you can make it work. You know, rents, uh, are higher than they've ever been. Um, cost of building is maybe coming down because they're slowing down and there's not such a demand for material so that, you know, the demand's lessening a little bit. So when you add it all in and hope that rates will come back down a little bit, things can maybe work out financially and cash flow. That's the key set. Net worth means nothing and cash flow means everything. I do believe that we're going to uh, possibly have our own kind of war here pretty soon. We don't know where we're all headed. None of us do. Pray it won't be in the U.S. These wars everywhere are scary. Uh, lives are, are being taken, which is sad for anybody and any family. It's, I can't even dread. I dread what's going on around the world. I just pray it don't come to the United States, and I pray that uh, everybody is safe here. But I remember that, uh, you know, just you know, when you invest, you know, don't, don't uh, you know, invest out of your knowledge. Stay in what you know, uh, and uh, why risk what you have to gain something you don't need to lose all that you have? So don't buy something that's going to, screw up your entire life, you know, don't, you know, it's not worth it. You mentioned you bought your first real estate deal when you were 18 years old. Was that a single family house or what, what type of, uh, 23rd and B street. It was just a house like the one we're sitting in now. And, uh, that'd be like right down the street from here. Yeah. It wasn't too far <laughs> away. So, and, uh, I was 18 and Pi Kappa Alpha at UNO and let the fraternity brothers use it and they helped me fix it up. And then I sold it at uh, 20 and, and then, I uh, had Ray Kopecky build me a duplex in Walnut Grove out about 144th and Q. I lived in half, got a 15-year fully am loan. was the smartest thing I ever did in my life, brand new duplex. Lived in half and rented out the other half. Uh, and uh, I was there 15 years. So on the when the, Oh, no kidding. Yeah, exactly. When the loan was up, I, I bought my next house. Huh. And then I used the cash flow for another 15 years from both sides to my new house. Now, did you have um, any guidance on doing that? Like, how did you know about? I mean, because what you do, what you're describing is what we call now house hacking. Like that, they say you you buy a multifamily property, you live in one unit, rent out the others, and then use that to basically pay for your living expenses. Did it's, how did you know what to do? Or you're just like, this sounds like a good idea. I'm just going to build a duplex when well, you're 21. I went to the greatest high school in the world, West Side High School, located at 90th and Pacific. That's where I went. Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went to UNO, which I've been grateful to be on the alumni board at West Side for 30-some years plus. And I've been on the College of Business uh, at UNO's advisory board for about 25 years. I love both of the educational schools uh, for high school and college. And uh, my and so the classes that I took at UNO were real estate uh, classes and business. And uh, I learned my first class was, you know, basically um, principles and practices of real estate. Mm -hmm. and, and when I was in there, I already had bought my first house. And uh, 
they said, you know, the professor says, you know, uh, get a house and then get the equity and buy another one and, and just keep going and, and, and you'll have two houses and then three houses and then four houses and or, or get a duplex. And so you live in one and let the other side pay your side. And I'm just listening to the professor and I went, that's a good idea. So kind of the, the idea, uh, you know, was my professor, uh, Wayne Wilson, I think is his name, um, at the uh, at UNO back in 1977, you know, and I just listened to him um, and I did it. You know, it's uh, it worked for me. I think it would work for anybody in the world. I mean, imagine if you could live in a duplex and within five years, the other side paid my side completely, taxes, insurance, principal, interest, maintenance for the last fifth, 10 years that I was there, you know, it was like a no brainer. Now I want to turn back the clock just a hair here, because, uh, I know you, uh, bought a lawnmower when you were how old? 10 years old, 10 years old. And you had, uh, correct, correct me if I'm wrong here. You had a couple of different paper routes, two or three paper routes that you were in and you started lawn business. Now buying a lawnmower when you're 10, that's a that's a that's a commitment. So you you went all in on that. How did you well, end actually? Up- I, I bought it at twelve because it was nineteen seventy when I bought the lawnmower. I started the paper route at ten. By the time I was twelve, I had three paper routes, so I was making you know more money. And I bought the lawnmower nineteen seventy, and and so that's when I was twelve years old, and uh, just uh, just remodeled Ty's outdoor power equipment. Ty. Just restored it of its original condition uh, about a couple months ago, and so I have a picture of it that Ted will put on the. You still have your original mower. That's this is crazy. I know. He right before we started recording, uh, you were telling us that uh, they restored it, and it looks like we've seen the picture, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it's got. Yeah, basically, it looks like the original uh, gold color. Oh yeah, it's right on there. So yeah, that nice. it's on the book. I don't know where you shine that at, but. Uh, <laughs> That's me in a suit uh, with the lawnmower before it was restored. So it was pretty, pretty well. I mowed a lot of grass with it. It was the only thing I had. It was the tool that I had. And uh, and then when my mother died, uh, I, I bought it with my mom to cut our own yard. And so I cut the grass at our. We had a big yard in Westridge Drive off a of 90th and Center, and kept it my whole life. It's the one thing I just hung on to, uh, very sentimental about it. And it was the beginning lawnmower. Like everybody has their one thing that they maybe started with, like CL Werner had his first truck that started Werner trucking. And I always, when I met him, I wanted to see his first truck and I showed him my first lawnmower clear back in, you know, the 1988 when I met him. So it's kind of neat to, to keep some of the original stuff. Well, now it's 50, years old <laughs> Fit, uh, see well it's, it looks like the day it came off the showroom floor <laughs> yeah yeah it looks and really it's cool 55 years old it's 55 <laughs> years old and and a pool it starts on the first pool that would be a lot cheaper to renovate than a than an old car yeah so that, that's a lot that's a lot cheaper yeah, it's, not a, it's not a shelby or what, what's your oh the saline must saline yeah, yeah 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 but uh <laughs> no okay so you so started the lawn business tell us about how did you land contracts to mow uh, military bases? How, how did that happen? I'm just fascinated by that story. You know, I started mowing one yard, uh, had a partner named Joe Smith, who's now the county attorney of Madison County, uh, Norfolk, Nebraska. He's a very close, dearest friend of mine uh, that uh, 
And so he and I started the lawn business when I was 16, when my mother died. Uh, I was in a foster family, and then uh, I bought him out for $400 uh, the first year because his asthma was so bad, and he went on to Creighton Law and became a great lawyer and now county attorney for 38 years. So I took the lawn service and just kept mowing with this more, and then I ended up getting uh, – I start mowing uh, Phil Sokoloff's lawn, who owned Phillips Manufacturing, and – uh, start mowing the summit condominiums behind West Roads. And uh, that's where I met Charles Lakin, where today, some six, 50 years later, I am uh, on the Charles E. Lakin Foundation now. For those not familiar, or maybe not from Omaha, the names that he's mentioning here are really, really, really prominent uh, names in Omaha, really successful, wealthy uh, families that, that he's naming. But, um, how were you getting these accounts? Were well, people it, just like seeing you mow and they'd be like, oh, yeah, uh, would you mind taking a look at mine and, and giving us a bid? Is that how that works? So I, back to the summit behind yeah. West Roads. I, I mowed Mr. Lakin's yard. Then he had the Lakin building at 90th and Dodge, and I start mowing that. And then he built a development at 120th and Blondo called Willowwood. And I ended up getting that. My first house was in Willowwood. Really? Yep. Well, so I started. 2002. Mr. Lakin developed it. It was 90 acres of common area and 27 acres of parks. And so I mowed that for like 15 years of my life, you know, through him and the SID. And then I got Candlewood across the street and then more and more and more. And so it just kept growing. Uh, The other people at the summit, they own Sofer Paint Company. Al Sofer had Crosswinds Apartments and uh, Ike Friedman of Borsheims. I mean, a lot of people there had businesses, and so then they liked me in this little orphan mo-boy that Mr. Lakin would call me. (laughs) Orphan mo-boy. Yeah, he would – I would end up getting, you know, their businesses. And eventually I got into the greatest thing that happened to me in my life was Suburban Rotary. Uh, at the Rotary Club. I was the, possibly the youngest ever joined since 1905. Now, people but, who don't know Rotary, what is what is a Rotary? It's a service club mm-hmm. that's been around by Paul Harris, was the founder in Evanston, Illinois, in 1905. I joined Suburban Rotary at 19, turning 20, in uh, 1979, 1980. And uh, I have 44 years perfect attendance. So I love Rotary. Um, and so I joined that. And I got to meet some of the most – back then, you had to own your own business. It was an all-man's club. Now, uh, today, it's got women that are wonderful. We're about one-third women and two-third men around the world of 1.4 million members. And Rotary has got three words that it runs by. Since 1905 and stayed consistent, we're in 195 countries, and everyone has the same three words, service above self. And so with that in mind – between service above self and the and motivation and persistence, determination, dedication, and consistency, never giving up from all the hell that I went through as a child and all the adversities, I continued to just keep my nose clean, work hard, and people would recognize my hard work. And then all of a sudden, I'd meet people at Rotary. I never, you're not supposed to ask for business or talk about business in Rotary. It's service above self. But people would recognize what I was doing, ask what I was doing. And before I know it, about five years into the club, I'm mowing 100 of the 200 members of Rotary, wow. which just gave me a spring, which one of them was my mentor of Alan Simon, president of Omaha Steaks. Then I did his house. Then I did all of his, where, his shop, you know, the steakhouse and warehouses and lawn and snow. 
And then uh, one day I met a gentleman and he said, you should mow. I, I work at Western Electric at 120th and L. And so I went out there and I bid it and won it. And I kept it for like 40 years of my career. <laughs> oh, I think thir- 35, 35 years of our career. We still, we still mowed it and it's 120 acres a week. So from 120th and L all the way to 132nd and L. Now today it's got Millard Lumber and all that's there now. Right. Yeah. Walmart, Sam's, Home Depot. But but that was a big, big job for me. And with that big job, off at Air Force Base in 1988, decided to take bids. And uh, so I bid it, but you had to have past experience of mowing something big. Well, I was mowing 120 acres a week. That helped me get enough experience. Money buys experience. Experience winds up with the money. So I had bought enough experience with having that job that I was able to bid off at Air Force Base and won it. And as of today, uh, my company that I pre- just recently sold is mowing it still. Wow, that's a great story. Since 1988. So we mow 2,300 acres a week of, of the housing and the military base. But you, you expanded that throughout the country, didn't you? So, in about, so then about 10 years later, I bid uh, – Another one in Cheyenne, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or Ellsworth Air Force Base in Rapid City, South Dakota, then Cheyenne, Wyoming, Warren Air Force Base, and then Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi, went out to Beale and Sacramento into nine military bases and Army, Air Force and Army, and it, and it grew to huge. I mean, there were like 25,000 acres a month of mowing. So just from that one one lawnmower to it, <laughs> a bunch of tractors with bat wings and uh, yeah, that's no okay. So I wanted to thank you all three for your tax paying dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no okay. So it's different when you're 12 years old and you have a lawnmower that you got from Sears, right? To being responsible for hundreds and thousands of acres that you need to mow and millions so, of dollars of equipment. Yeah. So how? Maybe talk about going from wearing the hat of an entrepreneur, a young kid running a lawn mowing business, to now you have a, an actual, like, legit operation where you're taking on large commercial customers. How did you how did you transition from doing it all to hiring? And what maybe talk about that process? Like, was it a struggle? Like, what did you what did you find you you were natural at at hiring and managing people, or what what was all that like? The hardest thing was I was little Johnny with the lawn, lawn service. So the, all the people that I first start mowing for the residential people and the small commercial and the condominium projects, they all saw that, you know, I didn't let Fifi out of the gate. I put the hose back where it was. I moved the picnic table back where it was, you know, I put the drain spout back on. So I didn't, you know, I respected their property like it was yours. Exactly. And when I start hiring help, and when I'd go not show up that day to that job because I'm trying to build, a, I had 500 residential accounts, you know, and put in, you know, and so all of a sudden now I'm not able to be there. And they said, we want you here, Johnny. And that changed transition from not being able to be there and have Steve or, or Rodney or Larry, you know, be there without me and trusting that they'll do all those same things, which most of them didn't sometimes, you know, and I heard about it immediately and so it was hard that transition from going from little johnny to hiring uh, my second crew and a third crew was the hardest part i ever went through 
And uh, and it was because primarily they weren't doing it the way that you would have done it. Mm-hmm. Is that maybe part of it? Where it's like it's a hundred percent of it. It wasn't part of it. it was a hundred percent of it. They didn't care because it wasn't their own. It's yeah. like anything. You you know you buy your kids a car, they're gonna drive it. They buy it themselves, they're gonna polish it. It's yeah, life. that's true. It's yeah. life. Mm-hmm. And because I had to buy everything I've ever owned, I took care of everything I owned. That's why I still got my lawnmower. (laughs) Then the second hardest thing I ever did is since I was 16, I've been self-employed for 45 years. I never had a job for somebody else. I am now, you know, I'm working. I have my own foundation, and then I work for the Charles E. Lakin Foundation. It's the first job I've ever had since 10 to 16 where I had about six jobs from the paper route, construction, and worked at House of Pies, which was a – Restaurant that had 57 variety of pies, a Shakey's Pizza, Conoco gas station, Texaco gas station, you know, and uh, fill and wash car wash. So those were Mr. Up's restaurant. I had all these jobs, but and most of the names of those gas stations are gone and most of the restaurants are gone because so many things change constantly in life. But I had good work ethic and then I carried it on through with my own business and now I preach about it to everybody every day. And, you know, either you work for somebody and give it your all or own your own business and give it your all. But all the time you should give it your all. And sometimes it's easier said than done. The hardest thing I went through, the hardest thing I think I had to learn was having employees because I knew how I wanted it and in way I wanted it. But able to, you know, I even had to take a hard lesson, and that was having someone older than me work for me, and I yelled at him once and threatened to fire him right in front of everybody, and he was about six foot tall, and I'm five six, and he was about 20 years older than me, and he literally picked me up and and carried me into my office. I was like 21 years old. <laughs> That's humbling. Yeah, in front of everybody because I, you know, I put him down in front of everybody, uh-huh. not knowing any better. No one taught me how to do this, but I knew he was wrong. He says, "Yeah, I made a mistake, but next time, and you call me into your office where we are now. Tell me what I did wrong and how you want to see it, and remember this the rest of your life. I quit today, but I hope that this will remember. And I'll never, I never forgot it the rest of my life. I never." Wow. Never embarrassed anybody in in public again. When I had a problem, called them in the office, shut the door, and and spoke it out, and and hopefully it worked out or they were fired, one or the other. But at least I'd learned from some hard lessons, you know, to do unto others as you want them to do unto you. There had been a lot of people that you were – I mean, you've been dropping all these influential names that you were working with and mowing the yards, but you had been getting lots of tips from these people and learning from these people as you were getting to know them. Well, they didn't teach me none of those things. Some of those were just self-taught, you know, because who's thinking about thinking about that? How do you – so, you know, it's all the things that you learn as you go along, you know. Because there's little things you pick up here and there as you're going, right? Because I remember, I think that you said you were, one of the first houses you were mowing was uh, the Geshwander's house. Yeah, they were my actual very, very first next door to where my foster family was, uh, Bob and uh, Samantha Smith at 11414 Shirley Street, where I was in the Burke District, but Westside was so great to let me stay at Westside High School and the Leonard and Arlene Geshwinder live next door, mm-hmm. and uh, the, and I went to their yard, knocked on their door, asked them to mow their yard, and that was the first, very first one, and she said, you're hired, get my car, and she took me over to her uh, 
Omaha school was the real estate. Um, yeah, Omaha school. Randall's, Randall's school of real estate took me over to the building at 112th and Wright, where was my last job that I worked in front of there was the fill and wash car wash owned by by Mr. Alford, Alford Bill yeah, Alford. Alford yeah. And uh, and so I, uh, she says, you're going to mow my yard and you're going to mow my office and you're going to bill my home to the office. And I didn't understand what she meant because I said, well, if I get paid mowing your yard and paid to mow your office, don't, isn't that two bills? She goes, no, you just bill my office. <laughs> yep. You know, and so I, I was, I'll never forget, I was 16 years old. And then the second guy. Lesson number one right there, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, to, I didn't know what that meant, but I learned later that, you know, you, that, that happened the rest of my career. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the things you don't learn in business school, right? Yeah, the, <laughs> How I, people want to get invoiced. I, I think the IRS finally just accepted it. <laughs> uh, so I learned a lot of lessons and whether they're right or wrong, uh, it's how it worked out, you know, and, uh, how how they took care of their accounting and bookkeeping was none of my business. Yeah. Now, John, maybe we could uh, dive a little bit more into uh, real estate. So you talked about your first purchase. You parlayed that into buying a duplex uh, on a 15-year note, paid that off, bought another uh, property after that. When you started doing bigger and bigger deals, like uh, maybe you could touch on... Well, I really went through the duplex, the house, the duplex... I literally was with my my good friend and and like a brother, uh, Charles Lakin, the son, Chuck Lakin, and I became very, very close. I met him through his father, and we bought uh, two threeplexes and two single-dwelling houses uh, about uh, south. Actually, one was around here on South 13th Street and and then – Forty third and uh, Barker Avenue, and uh, I just bought a duplex on Fourteenth Street. So I've been <laughs> yeah, eleven eleven South Thirtieth, Thirtieth and Park Park Avenue. Yeah, you know, and so they that was a threeplex, and so then uh, I bought a f- a fiveplex by myself on Saddle Creek Road, and then I bought a twelveplex, and then I bought a twenty-fourplex. And then I got involved with. Uh, How were you financing all these well, when you were just, that young? Well, I, had, I mowed a lot of yards, and so so you had a strong cash flow cash flow statement, mm-hmm. and you you just had a good banking relationship and, and paid then, your bills. Yeah, and then at twenty eight ish, I I bought uh, Dave Janky was a very close friend of mine, Janky Plumbing, one of my closest friends till he passed away at fifty, and he uh, sold me his half of Oak of Deauville Apartments by Oak Hills Off. Course sixty six units with Jim Larson. He was his partner. And I bought that with him. We sold. I sold out of that, uh, and then uh, I got involved with Oakbrook Park Apartments at one hundred eighth and Harrison by Rotella Bakery, and I owned five percent of the deal. And, uh, and how'd you carve that out? I'm curious. Yeah, like that's I, an odd. I found two other guys, and we became the general partners. So we each owned five percent, so a total of fifteen percent. And we raised the money of 85% and did a syndication. That was my first syndication. Did and you know what you were doing? No. Oh, did either <laughs> did the two other guys? They did. Oh, okay, that's so, good. You know, so I surrounded myself with smarter people around me all my life. That's just been my rule and I think it's a rule that's been around for for you know since Jesus. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that you know you just always surround yourself with smarter people. So in the end, how did that syndication work out for you and are you still doing business with those guys? So their names were Alan and and uh, Bruce and they had a company called Providence Management. They uh, wanted to do another one and 
they wanted to do a big one, mm-hmm. the, and I would be five percent again. And this one was going to be more like this. Our Oak Brook Park was 162 units, and the next one was going to be about 1,500 units. Holy moly! Dang, with several <laughs> complexes, and I, I don't know what it was, but I know that in, in whether it was intuition, I think is what it was. But I guess at that point. I, uh, I was also partners with the most wonderful partner I could have had named Jerry Slusky, a real estate lawyer in Omaha. Big, big name. Yeah. And he was my partner. And him and I owned a lot of things 50-50. We did probably 70 deals, counting big deals, little deals, lots, all the above. And it was a 20-year wonderful relationship. I learned so much from Jerry Slusky that the rest of my life I'm indebted to his mind and his kindness and he was a great partner and we it ended well we made a lot of mistakes and we made a lot of money we both learned a lot uh, and the mistakes mainly were only because of economic problems not because of the investment strategies mm-hmm. that he is wisdom wisdom was incredible but at this but i just enjoyed owning 50 50 or all of every deal and if i kept with providence management system which they went on to get even bigger and now they're in southwest florida and now they're huge with probably you know five thousand units and so in closing i just said uh i would rather own half of something than a percentage so i said guys you're going to go on to this great big deal of a 1500 units is there any way that you would sell me your general partnership then i'd own 15 percent you know, but a hundred percent of the general partnership of mm-hmm. Oakbrook Park, and then over a five-year period, I went to all the investors, paid them twelve percent on their money plus all their money back, and in a spiff, and they all eighteen investors sold out to me. So then, you know, so now I went from five percent on a hundred and sixty-two unit complex that was worth about nine million then uh, today. Uh, the last 18 years, I've owned it since 1993. Now I own it 100% myself, and it's worth more like $25 million. <laughs> So it was the best thing that I ever did. And I asked them you know, to please sell out to me, and they did as gentlemen. And they went on. And from that point on, I stayed into either deals that were 50% ownership or 100%. I'd rather own 50% or 100% of a 12-plex than 5% of 1200 units just because you can control your destiny and your journey you know what the exit strategy is a lot better mm. and it's just simpler so i like my life simpler it, i don't need ego i don't need to say i own it's uh, us we in our world and the more you i i i things it doesn't it gets lonely but if you're an us we in our world of the of your investments and even uh, with the team that you're with it just seems like it goes smoother, less waking up at the middle of the night, and you just can uh, have a better uh, feel about the investment, in my opinion. So you you went around to all of the limited partners in that deal, and you said, I want to buy you out. Why don't I pay you 12% on the money that you have invested in, in this deal? And and how, is that basically what you did? You just you you retro, asked them about- retroact back from the time they invested it. Okay, they got a retroactive annual twelve percent, plus they got a spiff to sell out. And everybody was so nice to me that some said, "Hey, I just want to stay in with you." And I said, "I know, but 
I just want to buy you out. And they did. Everybody just kind of rooted on for Rudy and sold out to me, and they were happy to. For Rudy. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're like, you cannot be in this deal with me, but have you seen this new lawnmower that I can provide to you at a discount? Uh, I was very blessed that they all went along with it because Oak Brook became one of my you know best assets. And April of 2028, I'm paying it off. Oh, that's so, cool. You know, so it was a, you know, it was a long deal. Uh, I'll be into it by that time, uh, 30 years. It was like a 30-year loan. But I'll have an asset that will be paid off at 68 years old and, you know, that uh, cat, that brings in about a quarter of a million a month. Dang, man. That's life-changing. Yeah, right that is really cool. Now, how did you, as you got bigger and started adding more assets to your portfolio, how did you approach management while you were still – growing your lawn business and adding new accounts and hiring for that. And like, you know what I mean? Cause they're, they're two different businesses and you have to keep your eye on the ball with both or at least manage the manager. How did you handle like the management aspect of it and operating the, the that business? I never have and never will. No, I always hired professional property management companies, great companies like Liberty property management, Burlington capital, the Lund company, some great companies out there. There's, they do best what they do. Now, some of those people like John Lund, who's a genius, and I've been partners with John before on strip malls and apartments, and Jerry Kelly and Rich Secor as partners at the time, you know, they had a great management company and they own real estate, but they were down to a science. At the same time they were doing that, my other company mainly was lawn mowing and, and an owner in real estate. I just never, in my degree at UNO was in business and real estate and land use economics. I learned how to be a property manager. I really learned it a lot. That was a big part of my education, but I just, and I, and I mowed for every property management company in Omaha. <laughs> so you saw how they ran. Yeah. I know yeah. how every one of them <laughs> ran, but I just never wanted their job. I felt that they do great at what they do and I do great at what I do. It's okay to let the other person make money doing what they do best. And so to this day, I still don't, uh, I'm involved in about 2,500 units and I don't have any ownership in any property management company and, and I just, my sons, uh, uh, don't, I don't see them doing it either. So it's, uh, it's okay and to be an owner in it and not have to worry about all the aspects of property management. Anybody out there that is interested in finding out more after listening to this episode, um, his book is titled uh, blank, <laughs> blank, blank. I don't you, have it anywhere. Where even, is this? What is this book called? I don't know. I have a lot of random stuff written down here that I don't know what it means. <laughs> the Rotary King? No, that's not right. Yep. There's going to be a lot of radio edits. <laughs> no, I'm just going to make Job security. Um, Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs>